You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. And welcome once again to Whitefields Community Church. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning to worship the Lord in song and by studying His Word. And that's exactly what we're going to do right now is transition into time, continuing a heart of worship as we study God's Word and we ask Him to speak to us and we want to hear from Him. So would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Amos and I'll give you plenty of time to find it. Because uh, I know some of you might not know where it's at. I actually, funny story, like I opened my Bible to put my marker in there and I had a hard time finding the book of Amos. So if I studied it all week and I had a hard time finding it, my guess is you will too. If you are, you, you want to cheat and we encourage that, like do whatever you got to do to get there. Use your table of contents. So um, I'll read our text for this morning and then we'll pray and then we'll get into our study. Amos 7 verses 14 and 15. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son. I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that this morning, as we study Amos, as we consider him, as we remember this prophet, Lord, would you give us eyes to see the truths in this that we need to hear for our lives. Lord, the challenges that you want to bring in front of us. And Lord, may we be those who say yes, Lord, to you when you call us and whatever it is that you're calling us to do. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this week we're beginning a new series here in the new year called Remember the Prophets. In James chapter 5, verse 10, James says this. He says, my friends, remember the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Take them as examples of patient endurance under suffering. And so for the, the first part of this new year, for the first couple of weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing exactly what James tells us to do in James chapter 5. We're going to be remembering the prophets, which means that we're going to be taking a look at some of the Old Testament prophets, who they were, how they lived, and what they said, what their message was, and how they are examples for us today. And I find it really interesting that James says, Remember the prophets, and don't just remember the things that they said. Don't just remember their prophecies. Don't just read their prophecies. But I want you to look at their lives. I want you to look at how they lived and remember that. Remember the times that they lived in and how their lives shone like stars in the sky, in the night sky, during those dark times in which they lived. Our theme for this next year, we, we've had a theme for every year for the last couple of years. Our theme for this year is Faith in Motion. And so one of the things that we're going to be doing later this year on that theme of faith and motion, we're going to be studying the book of James. And this, this verse comes from James, but also there's another thing that James says. He says some very intensely practical things. And one of the things he says is this. You know, it's really easy to say that you have faith. It's really easy to say that you believe this or that. But here's the thing. The way that you live reveals what you actually believe. Because sometimes there can be some dissonance, right, between what we say we believe and what we actually believe. And James says, look, you say that you have faith. I'll show you my faith by my actions. And so it's a really important question for us to ask ourselves. What does my life, the way that I live, the way I conduct myself, what does the way that I live say about what I actually believe, what I really believe, not just what I say I believe? And that's a major theme here in the prophets as we look at the prophets and the prophetic books and uh, we get into the series, but it's particularly a major theme here when we look at the first prophet who is Amos. 
Now, the title of today's message is Faith That Works. And that's in that whole vein of thinking like, that's what we learned from Amos. We see a person who had faith that manifested itself in real actions. There are three big things that I want to show you from the book of Amos and the life of Amos. And these are the three things we see in this, in this book. Number one, God is calling how will you respond? That's our first point. God is calling. How will you respond? Secondly, the, the number one reason why people give for rejecting Christianity and what to do about it. So the number one reason people give for rejecting Christianity, what to do about it. And thirdly, the only hope for all the world. The only hope for all the world. That's what we'll be talking about. Those three things. So number one, God is calling. Will you respond? Amos was an unlikely man called to do an extraordinary thing. Now the reason I say he was an unlikely man is because of his background. Amos was a nobody from nowhere. He had no pedigree. He had no formal training. But God called him to go and do something that was way out of his league. Like way out of his depths. And Amos obeyed even though he had every reason to to argue with God and give excuses why he wasn't cut out for the job and why he shouldn't do what God was calling him to do. And I wonder if you've ever felt that way. I wonder if you've ever felt that God has called you to do something and you felt ill-equipped for it. You felt like maybe I'm not cut out for this. I don't have what it takes. I, I like to put it this way. God never gives you more than you can handle except when he does, right? So God never gives you more than you can handle except when he does because that's the deal, guys. Like, does God ever call you to do something that is beyond your strength, that's beyond your ability, that's beyond what you have in you? Absolutely he does, but here's the good news in the midst of that. Like Amos, when you obey his call, it's never beyond his ability, and so if like Amos, you will say yes when God calls, what happens is that you take God's hand and you walk with him. And Ephesians puts it this way. Paul says in Ephesians that you can be strong, not in your own strength, but in the strength of his might. And so you take God's hand and he gives you the strength to do that and walk through those things that he has placed in front of you as you walk with him, even though your strength might not be enough, even though your ability might not be enough. Here's what we know about Amos as a person. It says in chapter one, verse one, the book begins like this. This. These are the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Amos was a shepherd who lived in a town called Tekoa. That's what we know. Now, shepherds, basically, if you look at the strata of society, they're the bottom rung, right? They're like the lowest man on the totem pole, the least respected job in that community. It was a job reserved for peasants and oftentimes slaves. And that was his job. He was a, a you know, lowest man on the rung of society. Shepherds were, um, it was a dirty job, by the way. You know, you're dealing with sheep, you're living outside. It was also a dangerous job. You had to deal with wild animals. You had to deal with thieves who would come and want to forcefully take your animals from you. And so it was a dirty job. It was a, it was a job that didn't have a lot of dignity, you might even say. And it was a job that was not well respected by people. If you were a shepherd, you didn't have a lot of people respecting you. Furthermore, he's from the town of Tekoa. Tekoa is a town in the Judean desert. It's near the Dead Sea. I've never been to Israel. We're going this year, and I expect to see this area. But I have seen pictures, and I'll tell you this. There's like nothing that grows there. It is a barren place. And along with barrenness, when you live in an agricultural society, comes what? It comes poverty. If you can't grow anything, you can't sell anything. That's why a lot of people in the desert were shepherds. They raised animals because you couldn't grow crops. And so what does that tell us about Amos? Not only is he a simple man, a shepherd, 
But he's also from a poor town, a small poor town in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert. Not only was he a shepherd, we know another job that he had. You know, people had multiple jobs, and his job was that he was a fig picker. A fig picker. Check this out. In Amos chapter 7. That's the text we read as we began. It says that Amos answered Amaziah. By the way, Amaziah was the priest of the northern kingdom of Israel. I'll get to explaining that in just a second. But he's speaking to this man who, you know, is a man of position and rank and authority. And Amos says to him, I was no prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, but I was a herdsman, a shepherd, and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So Amos worked as a shepherd and as a fig picker out there in the desert, trying to make ends meet. And one day, He's walking along with his sheep and God speaks to him and says, hey, I want you to go and do something that no one's ever done before. It would have been very easy for Amos to say, God, I think you've got the wrong guy, right? Like I'm just not cut out for this job because as he says there, I was no prophet, nor was I the son of a prophet. At this time, they actually had professional prophets. We know from reading the Bible, right, if you read 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, what it talks about is that there was a school of the prophets dating all the way back at least to the time of the prophet Samuel at the time around King Saul, King David, way back when the kingdom of Israel was established. There was a school of prophets. Elijah was involved with it, Elisha, Samuel. And this was like a formal training, mentoring program for people who felt called to go into professional prophet ministry. Now, Amos was not one of those people. He hadn't been through their school. He, he didn't have their degree. He wasn't a professional prophet. He was just a shepherd and a fig picker. And God called him and Amos obeyed. What did God call Amos to do? It says there in chapter 7, verse 15, God called Amos to go and prophesy to the people of Israel. Now that's important, and let me tell you why. Because at this time, the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which was 10 of the 12 tribes, was called Israel. So that's when he says, I went to preach to Israel. He's talking about the kingdom of Israel, which is the northern 10 tribes in the regions of historical regions of Galilee and Samaria. And the southern kingdom at that time, which is where he was from, was the area around the Dead Sea and included Jerusalem. And that kingdom was called Judah. And that was the two southern tribes of Israel. So you had the bigger population, more people, better land in the north, that's the kingdom of Israel, the worst land, the desert land down in the south, fewer people, but the city of Jerusalem, and that was the kingdom of Judah. That's why when we read at the beginning of the book, it tells us about two different kings, because there were two different kingdoms. Now here's the deal. Amos is from the southern kingdom, and he's called to go and preach to the northern kingdom. So that's important. Now, maybe you've heard of King David or King Solomon, who is David's son. David being that man after God's own heart who we read about in First and Second Samuel. His son Solomon being the one who was incredibly wealthy, the one who was commended by God because when he was offered anything he wanted in the world, he asked God to give him wisdom. Well, that was really the golden age of the kingdom of Israel. And during that time, Israel was united. All the 12 tribes lived together in one kingdom, united. But Solomon's son, after him, so Solomon's son would then be the fourth king of Israel. His name was Rehoboam, Rehoboam. And during the reign of King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, who was the grandson of David, there was a rebellion. And that rebellion was led by a guy named Jeroboam. So Rehoboam was the king, the rightful king, the son of Solomon. 
there was a rebellion by a guy named Jeroboam. And what Jeroboam did, he was a rebel, and he rounded up the 10 northern tribes. And out of the 12 tribes of Israel, he rounded up the 10 northern tribes and led them in rebellion against the rightful king, Rehoboam. And they broke away and started their own kingdom in the north. And they wanted to be so separate and so dependent from the southern kingdom in Jerusalem that they actually started their own place of worship. They built like their counter temple. They built their own temple in the north in the area of Samaria so that they wouldn't have to go down to the south for anything. They didn't like each other, hated each other's guts. They were sworn enemies and they started their own temple up there in Samaria. So when we read, for example, in chapter 7 about Amaziah, that's the priest of the northern kingdom in the area of Samaria. Now, not only did Jeroboam and those who followed him lead this rebellion against Rehoboam, the rightful king, but they also did a lot of things that were completely against what God had told the people in his word and in his law. So we often refer to them as the backslidden kingdom, right? The northern kingdom. They were backslidden in their hearts against God. And so let me ask you this. How do you think that rebellion worked out for those tribes who rebelled and, you know, broke God's law and did all these things? How do you think that turned out? Well, it actually turned out pretty well. I mean, things were going really great for them. From all outward appearances, things were going great. And here's why. Because that northern kingdom, they got all the good farmland. They got the Sea of Galilee. So they got fishing and industry and all these things. And the southern kingdom, they ended up with the desert. And so as a result, the northern kingdom was much more wealthy and prosperous than the southern kingdom. When it came to military might and power, the northern kingdom was much more powerful at this time. In other words, they were experiencing a time of incredible wealth, incredible security, and incredible power. And on top of all of that, they were very religious. There was a ton of religious activity. And the people assumed as many people do today, that if, if God is giving you money and security and all the things that so many people hope for, well, then God must approve of what you're doing. And of course, why wouldn't he? They're super religious. They were very active, you know, in making sacrifices. They had their own temple and they were very active in doing these things. Amos, on the other hand, right, he's from the south. He's a poor man from a poor town. And God calls him essentially to go to high society into the north, into enemy territory, and tell them a message that they don't want to hear. And here's what we see in Amos, that he is an unlikely person for the job. But God called and he responded. You know, it really is a recurring theme throughout the Bible that God loves to call people who you and me would, probably wouldn't have chosen for the job. And here's what I want to challenge you with today. I want you to ask this question. What is God calling me to do? Really, I want you to write it down. Remember it for later. Ask yourself this question. What is God calling you to do? Because here's the thing. It is impossible to know God without being called. It is impossible to know God and not be called by God. Let me explain that to you. First of all, in order to know God, God calls you to himself into a relationship with him. But here's the thing, once God calls you in and brings you into relationship with him, then God calls you again to go out. So once God calls you in, first he calls you in, and then he calls you out. He calls you to go out and be part of his mission. And so what that tells me and what it should tell you is this, that no matter who you are today here in this room, God is calling you. God is calling you. Either he's calling you in to himself to be a Christian, to embrace the gospel, to put down your yes. Finally, not just riding somebody else's coattails, your, your spouse's coattails, maybe your parents' coattails. 
that you've been kind of hanging out with and riding their coattails, but for you to put down your yes and say, yes, I put my trust and faith in Jesus Christ and embrace the gospel. Either God is calling you to do that, he's either calling you in, or he's calling you out into mission with him to be part of his work in the world. But either way, God is calling you. And the question for you is, how will you respond? Here at the beginning of the year, this is a great question for us to be asking ourselves as we assess things, as we look forward, as we we take stock of the past year and, and think about the one that is to come. God, what is it that you would have me do? What is it that you are calling me to do? When it comes to this idea of having faith that works, right? That's our title, faith that works. Amos is a great example for us of somebody who obeyed God in his, God's calling on his life to go out and be part of God's mission. Even though he felt that he wasn't qualified and maybe there were other people who were better suited or who would do a better job. You know, Amos's call reminds me of another person who God called. Another person who's in a very similar situation, really, right? He was a shepherd living in the wilderness, and he was called by God to do something which he felt absolutely inadequate and ill-prepared to do. And that man's name was Moses. You know, Moses was called to go and speak to the most powerful person in the world at that time, Pharaoh. And Moses had a speech impediment. Why would you call a guy with a speech impediment to go and speak before the court of the most powerful king in the world? And yet that's what God did. God called him to go and stand and ask the most powerful man in the world to do something that he didn't want to do, to release two million Jewish slaves, his entire free labor force. And Moses argued with God when God called him. He said, God, I'm not cut out for this thing you're calling me to do. I can't even complete a sentence without stuttering through it. Pick somebody else. But here's the thing I love about God's call in Moses' life. I love what God responded, how God responded to Moses in, in that discussion they were having, this back and forth. God said to Moses, Moses said, hey, I'm not cut out for this. And God said to Moses, Moses, what is in your hand? What's in your hand, Moses? So Moses looks down and like he literally just lives in the wilderness where there's nothing except for rocks and sticks. And that day he's holding a stick. Maybe another day he's holding a rock, but this day he's holding a stick, right? And so he's like, well, uh, I've got a stick. Literally like the most basic thing that exists in the world. It's a stick. And, and God says, perfect, I'll use that. You will use that stick. That is what I want you to use to accomplish what I'm calling you to accomplish. This seemingly impossible task. What do you got in your hand? A stick? Great. We'll use that. This simple stick ends up being used by Moses for the rest of his ministry in amazing ways. This stick that he'd probably been carrying around the desert for years, it ends up becoming the tool by which Moses accomplishes that which God called him to do. The stick will turn the water of the Nile River into blood. That stick will part the Red Sea. That stick will strike a rock in the desert and water will pour forth to feed thirsty people. This stick will be raised in battle and victory will be won by Israel. This stick will be known by another name later on. It will be called the rod of God. I love that. It's just a simple stick, but in the hand of Moses, by the calling of God, it becomes the rod of God. Just a simple stick. Who would have thought? Moses had probably just found that stick lying around in the desert as you do. This will probably be a 
good enough stick to carry around while I'm walking, because that's all I do, walk around, chase sheep. But who would have thought that this simple stick would be the means by which God would accomplish all that God wanted to do through Moses? Here's what's interesting. There had been a time in Moses' life when instead of a stick in his hand, he had a sword. Now, I would be like, a sword? God could really use a sword. That's something that God could use to do his work. That's something really powerful. But God chose to use the stick rather than the sword. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God use a stick rather than a sword? Why would God call a guy who stutters to go and speak to the most powerful king and the most powerful court in the world? Why would God call a guy like Amos a poor fig picker to go into the cosmopolitan northern kingdom and preach to high society hipsters? Why would God want to use someone like you? Why would God want to use someone like you to do his work? You know, I I read about a musician, a pretty famous guy. His name was Niccolo Paganini. Niccolo Paganini, he's an Italian guy. And he was known as one of the greatest violinists who ever lived. And one of the most incredible things that Paganini used to do was that he would play one string on his violin. And he actually composed an 18-minute long piece, which he played on one string on the violin. It was called Variations on One String. And the first couple times he performed this, what he did is he surprised his audiences. So they would, you know, everybody's gathered, you know, the lights dim, Paganini walks out, spotlight comes on him. And what he would do is he'd walk out and he would take his violin and he would break or cut one of the strings. And people are like, what's he doing? And then he would cut another string. And then he would cut another string so that there was only one string left on his violin that wasn't broken. And people are like, what is this guy doing? This is the weirdest concert we've ever been to. And then he would put that violin under his chin and he would play as a master for 18 minutes. This beautiful piece of music played on one string on his violin. And when he performed it, people would cry. They would stand up. There would be a standing ovation. Why? Because people realized that they had just seen and heard a true master. Because with a true master, it's not about the instrument as much as it is about the artist. I used to work in a snowboard shop, and the thing that we would always say about snowboarding is that there's no amount of equipment that will make you a good snowboarder, right, or a good skier, right? And really good skiers can do amazing things on the worst equipment. That's what we would always say, and that's really true, and it's the same thing we see with Paganini and, and with God, right, that someone can take something so simple And it actually brings more glory. You see the glory of that person. You see the skill displayed in a greater way when they use something of weakness, when they use something that is handicapped. So this guy playing on one string on his handicapped violin, you see that and you're like, truly, he is a master. And you see that with God as well. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that God loves to use the weak things of this world, the foolish things of this world. Why? Because That way, it brings him so much more glory. It's like Paganini playing a broken violin. God loves to take people like you and people like me. And if you will say yes when he calls, when he calls you in and when he calls you out, if you will say yes when he calls, he will take your life and like a great artist, he will use it to make something beautiful that brings him so much glory. And so here's the deal for us in here today. God is calling you. He's either calling you in to himself or he's calling you out on mission, but he's calling you either way. And the question for you today in this new year is this, how will you respond? 
How will you respond as God is calling you out into mission? See, friends, I hope you know that this Christianity thing, it's not just about you. It's not just about me. It's not just about us as individuals. It's about something much bigger, much grander. It's about this mission of God that he is doing in the world, and he wants us to be a part of it. I encourage you to respond like Amos did, though he could have had plenty of excuses why he couldn't do it, why God should use somebody else. Instead, he chose to respond. And for all of history, we will remember the shepherd of Tekoa, the fig picker from the backwoods, podunk town who God used to give his message to high society. And the question I want to ask you today is this, what do you have in your hands Right? That's what God asked Moses. What do you have in your hands? Moses is like, I got a stick. God said, perfect. We'll use the stick. He asked Paul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle, what do you got in your hands? Well, he says, well, I got these chains and I got a pen. God says, perfect. We're going to do some great things together. And he calls Amos. Amos was a fig picker. Now, I, I read that the way that you pick figs, I have to say that very carefully because this morning I was rehearsing this and I kept uh, mixing up the first letters of those, vow of those words. And let's just say it sounds pretty bad if you say uh, the other way around. So he's a fig picker. I got to slow myself down, right? So the way that you pick figs is that you squeeze them towards the bud or towards the root. And in a way, that's exactly what God called Amos to do. He said, you're a fig picker. You're the exact person I need. Here's why. Because I want you to go to the northern kingdom and I want you to squeeze them. I want you to put on some pressure right at the root of the issue that's going on up there. And so let me ask you this. What about you? What do you have in your hand? You're like, I have a smartphone. Of course you do. Of course you do. I do too, right? So you got a smartphone. What are you going to do with it? How can God use that for his glory? You're like, I've got a hammer. I've got a paintbrush. I've got a laptop. I've got a ball. Whatever it is that's in your hands, start there. Start there with how God wants to call you and use you and call you out into mission. Maybe you say, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a mom or a dad. I've got my hands full of little kids. Perfect. That's great. Maybe you've got a skill. Maybe it's something you're passionate about. Awesome. If you are wondering, well, how can I serve God? What can I use to serve God? I want you to do this. Start by taking a look at what you have in your hand right now. It's that very thing, that very thing, very likely it's that thing itself, which will be the very thing which God wants to use to accomplish his purposes through you for his mission and for his glory in the world. So I want you to ask this question, God, how might you use this thing that is already in my hands right now for your purposes? If God could use a stick, literally like the most basic thing in the world, if God could use a stick, then he can use whatever you have in your hands. Let me tell you that. Are you willing to take whatever it is that you have in your hand and in this season of life that you're in, whatever it is, and dedicate it to God and say, God, this is what I have in my hands. Lord, would you show me how to use this for your purposes and for your glory? You know, there's a little boy who came to Jesus one day and all he had in his hands was his lunch, right? Like five loaves of bread and two fishes. It wasn't a lot. But what he had, he handed it over to Jesus and Jesus blessed it and he multiplied it and he used it to do one of his greatest miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. Now you might not have much, but whatever you have, I want you to take that in your hands, dedicate it to the Lord and say, God, I give this to you and I want you to take this. Lord, I ask that you take this and do great things with it. Things that I would have never imagined if it was left up to me. But here's the key. When God calls, you respond. So wherever you're at today, if God's calling you in to a relationship with himself, you respond. If God's calling you out into serving him in doing mission with him, then you say, yes, Lord. And you know why? 
Because if you say no, Lord, that sounds really silly. And you know why it's silly? Because those two words are totally mutually exclusive. Like you can't literally cannot say no, Lord. Because at the moment you say no to the Lord, he no longer is your Lord. That's what that word means, right? Like he's the boss. So it's just silly to say no, Lord. So don't do that. Say yes, Lord. And, that, and that's what it means to have faith that works. That's part of what it means. Let's look at the second point here, which is this. The number one reason people give for rejecting Christianity and what to do about it. The number one reason people give for rejecting Christianity and what to do about it. God called Amos to go to Israel and tell the people there what the, that they needed to repent. The only thing is, like many people, they did not believe that they needed to repent. He was like, repent. And they were like, no thanks. Like, we're good. No, we don't want to. Now here's what's interesting about the northern kingdom of Israel. Like I mentioned before, even though they were backslidden in their hearts, outwardly they were still full of religious activity. They were still very active religiously. They had their own religious worship center there in Samaria, and they performed a lot of sacrifices, and they did all these things, these religious things. But there was something about their worship that God says that he hated. Take that. That's weird, right? Like, how is it that God hates these people's worship. Now, let me read you part of Amos chapter 5. Here's what God says to the people of Israel in Amos 5. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not even look at them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. If that last line sounds familiar, it's because Martin Luther King Jr. used to use that line in almost all of his speeches. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What these verses are talking about is that the people of the northern kingdom, at this time, there was no lack of religious activity. They performed all kinds of feasts, all kinds of offerings, but God looked at their religious activity and they said, guys, your religious activity disgusts me. I hate it. Get the noise of your songs out of my ears. I don't want to hear it. Now that's incredible. That's surprising, right? How could it be that God would hate the sound and the sight of people worshiping him? That seems totally the opposite of what we'd expect. Well, here's the thing. Here's why God was repulsed by their worship. Because whereas they worshiped him in the temple, when they left the temple, they practiced injustice and corruption and evil and sin. In other words, to put it in our language today, the way that we generally talk, they were what we would call religious hypocrites. They were religious hypocrites. They went to church and acted one way, and then they came out of the church and they acted a completely different way. And God saw that and it made him extremely upset to the point where he says, I don't want to hear your songs. I don't want to see your, I don't want to even pay attention to what you're doing. In Amos chapter 4, Amos gives them this message. He says this, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Now by calling them cows of Bashan, that is an insult. I want you to understand that it's an insult. He's essentially making a fat joke. So if you were like, I don't think there's any fat jokes in the Bible. Well, there is. And you just found one. Amos chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, cows of Bashan. He's basically saying, you guys, you know, you're just gorging yourselves, feeling good. But then look what he says. You're gorging yourselves, feeling good on the mountains of Samaria, but you oppress the poor and you crush the needy. 
And God said, this is making me angry. You can't do this. This is the message he gave to the people of the northern tribes. You can't say that you love God and worship God and yet live in a way that is contrary to the heart of God. You can't say that you love God and worship God and yet live in a way that's contrary to the heart of God. There were four groups of people in ancient Israel and in the ancient world who were considered the most vulnerable people in society. They're sometimes called the quartet of the vulnerable, right? The four most vulnerable groups in society. And those were these, widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. And what's interesting is that these four groups of people, not only were they considered the most vulnerable and the most susceptible to being taken advantage of and exploited, but God, throughout the Bible, associates himself with those four groups of people specifically. He calls himself, he says, I am the husband of the widow. I'm the husband of the woman who has lost her husband, right? I am the father of the orphan, the one who has no father. I am his father. He says, I am the protector of the poor. We see him as the advocate for those who are immigrants, like with Ruth taking her in and making her part of the family of God. And what it means to love God, in other words, is to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. God loves justice. God loves it when people stick up for and defend the weak and vulnerable and those who cannot protect themselves. And God hates injustice and deceit, lying and evil. And what was happening in northern Israel at this time is that these people who claimed to be the people who loved God, they were doing things that God hated. They were oppressing and abusing and taking advantage of the weak and vulnerable, the poor and the downtrodden, rather than protecting them and advocating for them. And then they would go to church and they would sing songs and they'd make sacrifices. And God says, I am deeply disturbed by the way that you're living and the way that you're acting. And the truth is, this kind of thing doesn't just, didn't just exist in ancient Israel. It wasn't just isolated to that time and that place. It happens in our days as well. And you know that, right? That religious hypocrisy is alive and well. And what this reminds us of is this, that God is also disturbed by religious hypocrisy. I hope you know that. If you've been bothered by religious hypocrisy, read the book of Amos and know this, that God is also disturbed by it. God doesn't play games. He doesn't like it when he sees people playing church and putting on religious facades, but then going out and acting in ways that are completely contrary to his heart and doing things that are disturbing and, and evil. And it's not only God who's disturbed by that, by the way, but it's also a lot of people. Maybe some of you are like, yep, I am disturbed by that. But I'll tell you this, people who are not here today, a lot of them in our community are disturbed by it as well. And perhaps rightly so. You know, we did a series last year uh, called The Trouble Is. And in that series, we took two weeks to look at the, kind of the six top six objections that people generally have to Christianity. The things that Christians say, this is the hardest thing about Christianity for me to accept. And the things which people who aren't Christians say, these are the reasons why I reject Christianity. And so we took this poll online. We had a lot of people share it. We got several hundred responses. And the number one response that we got, and that it totally aligns with all the other polls taken by much bigger source groups and everything like that. This is the number one answer. The problem with Christianity, people will say, either who are Christians or who are not Christians, who've rejected it, they'll say this. The number one problem with Christianity is that Christians are hypocrites. By the way, we had the sermon, and it was called The Trouble Is Christians Are Hypocrites. It was our number one most downloaded sermon last year. Like, it was listened to way more than any of our other sermons. What does that tell you? This is something that people actually think about, right? This is something people are literally writing in Google, Christians are hypocrites, and then our sermon comes up and we get to speak into it, which is awesome. But it's an issue for people. It's the number one reason people give for rejecting Christianity. 
By the way, just a plug for something else coming up is that after Easter, we're going to be doing another series, kind of in that same vein of the Trouble Is series that we did last year. This one's going to be called, I Could Never Believe in a God Who, and then we're going to have six weeks of talking about some objections that people have or, or things like that. So be looking forward to that. But back to this idea of hypocrisy, if it gets, it gets to this issue of faith that works, because here's what people say. People generally who, let's say they reject Christianity, they'll say, look, I don't even care to find out if Christian doctrine is true, because all I need to know is that I look at the kinds of people that Christianity apparently creates, and I say, well, there must be something fundamentally wrong with Christianity if these are the kinds of people it creates. People who are mean-spirited or people who are hypocritical. The word hypocrite, by the way, comes from the Greek word for actor, because in that day, Greek actors would wear masks. And so essentially, what that word hypocrite means, it means to pretend to be something that you are actually not. And one of the main messages of the book of Amos is about condemning religious hypocrisy and saying that God is angered and upset by it. And it's interesting that here in the book of Amos, if you read through this book and you see, well, how did Amos, this nobody guy from nowhere in the south, go to the north where people, where the people in the north hate the people from the south? How did he get those people to even listen to him? Well, here's how he did it. It's actually pretty smart. And if you read through the book, you'll notice it. Here's, here's what he did. In chapter 1 and into the beginning of chapter 2, here's how he started out. You know, you can imagine if you were to have a press conference, what he did is that he began his message by condemning the actions, the bad, evil actions of other nations, right? So imagine it'd be like if you had a press conference, right? You get a press conference, a bunch of people listening to you, you know, you got the TV uh, cameras on you, and you're like, hey, I'm here today to talk about the evils of the regime of North Korea. And everybody would be like, yeah, okay, all right, yeah, yeah, we, we all agree. North Korea, bad. And then you say, and not only North Korea, but I'm here to talk about the human rights violations of China. And you'd be like, oh yeah, I like this guy. And you start clapping. This guy is, he's really advocating for some important stuff. You know, he's speaking out against North Korea. He's speaking out against China. And then I'd be like, and we're speaking out against the aggression against Russia. And by this time people are cheering and they're yelling and they're like, you know what? Yeah, because if there's a God in heaven, he definitely sees all the evils happening here on earth. And one day there's going to be a day of reckoning where everybody's going to get what they deserve. And they say, yeah. And then Amos did something even better. He went beyond that. Remember, he's from the south, and the people in the north don't like people in the south. So what does Amos do? At the beginning of chapter 2, he says, and you know what else? The, the people of Judah, my kingdom, they've also done evil things. And people are like, wow, man, this guy's amazing. They love him now because he's like, you know, we always thought that you guys were bad dudes down there. And now even you think you're a bad guy. Wow. Yeah, we totally agree. God's going to judge all those other guys. And God's going to judge those guys in the south. This is the best speech we've ever heard. And then halfway through chapter 2, Amos kind of flips the tables on him and says, but what I'm really here to talk about is what you guys are doing and what God thinks about that. And they're like, whoa, wait a second. That's not what we signed up for, right? And so the people in the northern kingdom, they believe that this day of reckoning, by the way, there's this term throughout the prophetic books called the day of the Lord. They believe that this day of reckoning was going to come. And when it did, God was going to set right and give everybody what they deserved. But they thought that that applied to other people, not to them. What Amos is saying is, no judgment will begin with the household of God. And he says this in chapter 5, verse 18. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you want the day of the Lord, is what he says. Why? Because what he's saying is, 
In other words, people are saying, man, I can't wait. I hope that one day God comes and he gives everybody exactly what they deserve. Have you ever said that yourself? Have you ever had that feeling or heard someone say that? And Amos is saying, trust me, guys, the last thing that any of us should be wishing for is for God to give us exactly what we deserve because what all of us deserve is God's judgment. And I'll just say this as we move on to our last point. As I look at the book of Amos, here's what goes through my head. Now, I don't think I'm a religious hypocrite. I really don't want to be one. Uh, I'm not, I'm trying not to be one. Like, I don't think I'm pretending to be somebody I'm not. I, I'm, I try to be open and honest about my sins and shortcomings and confess them and repent of them. And I, and I ask God to work in me and empower me to be better and different. But are there times when I worship God and then I walk out the doors of this building and I sin? Absolutely, like every single time. There has not been a time when I didn't. And are there times when I pray and I say, you know, uh, I, I do all these religious things. I pray, I read my Bible. And yet, at the same time, I don't do all the things that I could possibly do to help those who are suffering and hurting in the world. Of course, I could do more. All of us could do more. You see, it's not just sins of commission, meaning things that you do, but there are also sins of omission, which means things that we should have done, but we didn't do. And so as I read this, I'm convicted, right? Because I can't help but think, man, it seems like some of this stuff that makes God upset, I do that stuff sometimes too, right? So in other words, it's not just like these guys that God was upset with, but I'm probably guilty of some of this same stuff myself, even though I try not to be. And honestly, I think if we read this book and we read about the sins of Israel and we say, oh yeah, those guys were the worst. They were so dumb, right? And they did all this bad stuff and they really deserve God's judgment. Aren't we just the same as them, right? Aren't we just in the same exact boat, right? For the first one and a half chapters where they're like, yeah, let them have it. You know, tell them all the things they've done wrong. They deserve God's judgment. We're in the same boat if we do that, right? And so what that means is that we're not really that much different than they were. So obviously this is the problem, that God is very upset by religious hypocrisy, and yet the number one reason why people reject or struggle with Christianity is religious hypocrisy, and yet if I look at my life, I have to say that I'm probably guilty of it at times too, and probably so are you. And so the question is, what can be done about it? And that brings us to our third and final point, which is this, the only hope for all the world. Amos is not just a book of warnings and judgments. It's actually a book of incredible hope. And here's why, because he tells us the solution to the problem of sin and judgment. In chapter five, Amos says three times this phrase. He says, here's what you need to do. Here's the way to obtain mercy from God instead of judgment. Here's what he says. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. And again, he says it in verse six, seek the Lord and live. And he says it one more time before the end of the chapter. And here's the thing about seeking the Lord. If you seek the Lord, it requires you to humble yourself because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It requires you to give up control of your life because by calling him Lord, you are saying you're the Lord and no longer am I the Lord over my life. You're handing control over to him. To seek the Lord means to repent of your sins because it implies a change of direction. That's what the word repent means, by the way. It means you were going one way, pursuing certain things, and now you're changing and going a different way. If you do that, then rather than judgment, God offers mercy. The book of Amos is really, at its heart, a book that is all about God's love and mercy. And here's why. Because with these 10 backslidden tribes in northern Israel, God doesn't just write them off and say, okay, well, you guys were bad. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Go away. I don't ever want to see you again. What does he do? He sends them a prophet to speak to them, to call them back, 
to call them, guys, abandon what you're doing. It's going to result in judgment. Don't do it. He pursues them. He sends them prophets to tell them what's wrong and to call them back to himself so that rather than judgment, they might receive mercy and grace. The only reason you warn somebody is because you actually care about them. And so friends, I want you to see this, that this book shows us that God deeply loves and cares about backslidden people. And maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe there are some of you here today, and maybe nobody knows it except for you and God, but you are backslidden in your heart, just like the people of Israel. Maybe you still come to church, but you know that in your heart, you've backslidden. Know this, God loves and pursues backsliders. He loves you, and he is pursuing you, and you respond to him. As he calls you in, respond to that call. Now, maybe there's some of you today, though, what you need to hear is this, that God loves backslidden people. Maybe there's someone in your life, a specific person, who God is calling you to reach out to and minister to in his name, just like God called Amos to go and speak to these backslidden people of the northern kingdom. Here's the good news. No matter how much you have fallen short in your life or in this past week, whether you have done it willfully or whether it's been a form of neglect, omission, even on accident, years after this book was written, the one to whom this book ultimately points came into the world. He lived a perfect life and fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements on your behalf for your sake. And he died a sacrificial death. He took all of the judgment that your sins deserved. He took all of it upon himself so that rather than judgment and wrath, you could receive acceptance and forgiveness and everlasting life. The book of Amos ends with a picture of the world that is to come. This perfect world that all of us long for in our heart of hearts. And it says that that world is reserved for the remnant of those who have received God's mercy and God's grace. And the hope of the gospel is that because of Jesus Christ, that will be our destiny. If you put your faith in him, if you embrace the gospel, who he is, why he came, what he did for you, because he took your place in life and in death so that you could receive mercy and grace, forgiveness and hope, that hope and that promise can be yours in him. And in conclusion, I'll just say this. Because because these things are true, because of what Jesus has done for us, because of the hope that we have in him, because of the forgiveness and the grace and the power and the life, how then should we live as we continue to live in this place? Well, let us be those who honor God and honor him as Lord of our lives. May we hate evil. May we love justice. May we humble ourselves and seek him. And let us be those who respond to his call and say yes to everything he calls us to do. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message of good hope. Lord, thank you that you care enough to warn us. And thank you that you give us a book like Amos that shows us that you care about things that, we, that definitely hurt us as well. You care about religious hypocrisy, Lord, and you don't want us to go down that path. Lord, we repent of that. We repent of our sins together. And, and we also repent of our, our times when maybe we've fallen in the category of, of hypocrisy. But Lord, thank you, Lord, that your grace and your mercy are new every morning, that they flow down like a river. And Lord, we just want to bathe in that river. We want to receive your grace. We want to receive that new life that you offer us because of Jesus. So Lord, today we embrace the gospel. We say yes to you. As you call us into yourself, we say yes. 
but we also say yes as you call us out into your mission. Lord, what would you have us do? How can we use the things in our hands for your glory? We ask that you'd lead us and answer those questions. And Lord, give us the strength to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 